One of the things I have noticed myself doing as I have gotten older is more and more I appreciate receiving a word of warning from someone. Perhaps, like I, you, when you were little, at some point received a word of warning from a parent. Very simple one, such as do not touch the hot stove. I think about warnings that I received today and sometimes a little more regular than I appreciate them. And it was similar to the other night. You know, there were a few storms coming through our area and we, like so many, have a weather radio. And I don't know if those people are aware of it, but I'm not really concerned about a late wind advisory when I'm laying in my bedroom at 2 o'clock in the morning. But there are several of those that come across. But yet there are times when I appreciate that warning. And there are times when we have warnings that come our way and we strictly heed to them. You might walk up to a home, for instance. You might see a sign that says, Beware the dog. And you don't really question what may be on the other side. It may be a rockwiler or it may be a chihuahua. But you're not really concerned about that at that point. But there are several times in our lives when we are given warnings, many people are at least, and they do not heed to them. You might remember the date of April 14th. 1912, that was the night that the fateful Titanic sank to the bottom of the sea. And you might remember where all the credit really was given to one man, and that was Captain Smith, ended when he received warning that that ship was about to perish. Its inhabitants were about to be lost. He failed to heed that warning. And because of his shortfall on that night, 1,517 people lost their lives. You fast forward into history, one event was commemorated just the other day, I know that because it's both Kelly and Jennifer's birthday, Pearl Harbor. You think about December 7, 1941, and how it was the case, at least reports say, that Sergeant Joseph Lockhart received plenty of warning that that attack was about to take place, but he too disregarded it. And because of that disregarding, nearly 3,000 people lost their lives, 2,350 just in that one event. Others died later as a result of injuries. And so you can see the warnings ought to be heeded. They ought to be listened to. They ought to be something done that would prevent us from being involved in that which we are warned about. I don't know that there's a greater warning in all the Bible, however, than the one that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, you'll notice it with me, if you will, this evening in verse 15 to begin with. The words of Jesus there are penned, and he says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravaging wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Question, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bringeth forth good fruit, for every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. He says, Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Now you may notice a little separation in your Bibles. Let's ignore that for tonight. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Verse 22, For many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have we not cast out devils? In thy name done many wonderful works. Now watch the words of our Lord here. They are most important. And then I will profess. What are you going to say, Jesus? 
And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now why do I put that together? Well, I think logically, when you notice what Jesus has done already through the Sermon on the Mount and will continue to do through the end of it, he talks about one subject at a time. He may mention other things. There may be related ideas that can be drawn, but he talks about one thing at a time. And here he talks about false prophets. And he speaks of those false prophets, which we in turn would call false teachers. And he says, in that day, as he is in the end of time, the day of judgment, Jesus will profess, I never knew you. Now you can think about that and you can look around you as I often have when I've read the text and said, well, you know, Jesus, you go get them. Now, those false prophets, those false teachers, the people who take your gospel and twist it and try to change it, try to make different application of it than what ought to be made, Jesus, that's exactly what you ought to do with them. I'm sad to say I hadn't looked in the mirror long enough. Because what he speaks of here has something to do with what they say has something to do with what they speak, but it has every bit as much to do with the life that they live. And that doesn't necessarily reflect on everyone else so much as it reflects on me. But when we give consideration, and this is our topic for tonight, to a danger that we must determine, there are three things I want you to notice. And the very first one is we're going to take this text and we're going to unveil it, unwrap it, if you will, in a certain way. And I want you to notice with me the fleece that they wear. You remember here as we read across it there, it's in verse 15 and 16. He says to beware of these false prophets. Why, Jesus? Because those false prophets will come unto you, oftentimes and more times than not, will come unto you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, he said, below the surface. They are ravaging wolves. Now what do you and I generally know about one another? What do you and I generally recognize about those around about us? Why, generally we only recognize what we can see. You see someone, for instance, on the street, they have a smile on their face, they sing happy-go-lucky, maybe they're a conversationalist, they're able to talk, they're able to carry on a conversation. Maybe you think of that person, you say, well, that's a pretty happy-go-lucky fellow, happy-go-lucky young lady, and I appreciate her for who she is, and I, I really like her. And sometimes there's not as much danger in that as there could be. Then on the same instance, you may see someone out on the street, and maybe they've as we would say, had a bad day. They're not as talkative as they ought to be. They've got a frown on their face. You may accuse them of having a chip on their shoulder. And you say, well, I don't care so much for that person. There's something wrong with them. I'd just really rather avoid them. What are we judging? We're judging outward appearances. We're judging what could be, in many instances often is, it's sheep's clothing. It's not the inward parts of man that oftentimes causes the problem. It's what's beneath the wool. We've studied before the, uh, something we call the shepherd's psalm, the 23rd psalm. Speaks of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Goes on and on and on and talks about how that shepherd is able to pull the wool back from the eyes of that sheep. And that's what he does. His tender love, his tender care, he does that. So that's what we're doing. We're unveiling. We're going to pull the wool off of these sheep's backs. Now in order to do that, I want to tie this text to another. I think it really, really has something to do with it. 
Go with me to the book of Jude. Jude's a single chapter book, right before the book of Revelation, the very last book in the New Testament, before the book of Revelation. But look with me in Jude verse 11. Only one chapter here, so Jude verse 11. And I just want you to hear what Jude is having to say. And he's speaking of false prophets. And he, like Jesus, is likewise warning false prophets, which could be you, could be I, we don't know yet. Warning them of certain things they ought not do. Notice what he said, verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Now I say it often, but if you write or underline in your Bible, I'd underline that word or name, Cain. He says, for they go the way of Cain and ran greedily after the era of Balaam, underline that. He goes on to add a full reward and perished in the gangsaying of Korah. Now it's spelled more like Kore here. The New Testament version, C-O-R-E, is referring back to Korah that's spelled with a K in the Old Testament. We'll mention each of them in just a moment. But you read across that and you don't have very much. Maybe that's why the letter to the Romans said, Romans 15, 4, so whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. What he's saying there, Paul writing the Romans says, you better pay attention to the Old Testament Scriptures. Heed what I'm saying, but hear the Old Testament Scriptures so that you may understand the new. All three of these characters are Old Testament Bible characters. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Let's consider them. Because in my estimation, he's pulling the wool back pulling the fleece back from these sheep. Think about Cain. Cain, you might remember him. He's recorded in the Old Testament at least as being the first murderer. It was he and his brother Abel, and you might remember they were basically the children, at least the first recorded children by name of Adam and Eve. Here they are, they're recorded, they're brothers. We would assume they're brothers like any other. Maybe they, maybe they push each other a bit. Maybe they don't necessarily get along. But you would assume they are family. They are blood kinship. So there ought to be some sort of a relationship. But when it came time to offer sacrifice to God, which apparently, we have not the wording of it, but apparently God had required at that point, it seems that God was expecting and also allowing or accepting only a blood-bought animal sacrifice. We can be fairly certain in that because we go forward on into the law of Moses that wasn't introduced at that time, but later would be. That's what he accepted. That's what he called for. And what happened between these two brothers? Well, Abel. Abel was the kind of man. He was a natural out in the field. Maybe he was a natural at taking animals and such. Maybe he was one who kept sheep, what have you. And he had the opportunity. He at least took the opportunity. When God asked for that sacrifice, that's just what he brought. But Cain was different. Cain turned around and he brought apparently nothing more than the fruits of the field. Wasn't acceptable unto God at the time for whatever reason, none of my business really, but he brought the fruits of the field, vegetables or something of that sort maybe. He brought that and when God was not pleased with it, a great jealousy erupted between those brothers, at least from the direction of Cain toward Abel, and he slew him. But why in the world... Why would you, through the inspiration of God, right here in the middle of everything, stop talking about false prophets and say, don't you go the way that Cain went? It's because of this. Cain, in my estimation at least, represents the false prophet or the false teacher who would pervert the gospel. Now the word pervert just means to twist. You see someone out on the street and you say, oh, he's a perverter. They have a perverted mind. That just means their mind's twisted. Whatever's considered normal doesn't necessarily line up with them. 
when someone perverts the Scriptures. That's what they do. They take a verse that you and I would totally accept, that you and I would read. It seems plain. It seems simple there. They read across it, and they'll just twist it. They'll change a word. They'll loosen a word. They'll disregard a word. Whatever they need to do with a certain text, a certain passage, and they'll pervert it. Isn't that what Cain did? Cain looked at what God had commanded. God said, you offer this animal sacrifice, apparently. And Cain said, well, I hear what you say, God. I have the instruction just like my brother here, Abel, does. But I'm not going to do it. I'll change it just a bit. And God, you ought to accept it because all I've done is just made a small change here, just moved a few things, just adjusted it to fit me. How does that have anything to do with a false prophet? That's what some do. Some men who are false prophets, and I'll begin with those who preach or teach a supposed Bible doctrine, they are false prophets because they simply take what God says and they say, God, I appreciate the revelation. I appreciate what you've said. I appreciate the insight. But I don't agree with it totally, so I'll just twist it to fit my needs or perhaps the needs of an audience. Now bounce it off of them back to self. When I read through God's word and I see things where God says, Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt or thou shalt not, whatever it is, any instruction that is inspired of God, which is Bible, when I read that and I will not do it, or I refuse to go along with it, or I try to change it to fit me, false prophet standing behind this suit. He's right here. I may not have spoken a word, I may not have uttered one breath out of my mouth, but at the same time, I'm a false prophet. And he said, woe unto them that go after Cain. But not only Cain, there was Balaam. Now, Balaam doesn't necessarily represent those who pervert the gospel. No, he does something different. You can reference this in your Bible a bit later if you'd like, but if you go back and you look into Numbers chapter 22, you would read the entire story there, Balaam, between chapters 22 and 23 at least. And you might remember, our children enjoy it, because what happens is someone comes to Balaam. Now, he's a prophet of God. He, he tells the people just what God would have for them to know. But someone comes to Balaam, and they say, Balaam, I need your help. What I need you to do, I've been seeing these children of these Israelites, the children of Israel, God's chosen people, I've been seeing them rise up. they got a lot of power, and hey, their armies are vicious. We try to go against them. God's behind them. We can't do anything to destroy them. So here's what I need you to do. I know whatever you say on behalf of Israel, if you bless them, they are blessed. And I've kind of figured out, if you'll curse them, they'll be cursed. Maybe you give them some wrong instruction. You just tell them something that's not exactly what God, whatever it was, nevertheless, they said, if you'll curse them, they will be cursed. Then we'll defeat them in battle. We will be victorious in these things. Now, Balaam was hesitant. Just a bit. They offered him money. He seemingly refused. But he still met with them. They offered him more money, even to the point that the text says there at some point that he was offered as much silver as is in the king's house. And he said, you know, this could work. I'm only one prophet, and I, I could try this. I, I don't know if it'll actually curse the people or not, maybe. But for that money, 
For those things, I think I'll do it. And so here's where our children really come into the story because Balaam is traveling along the road on the back of a donkey. He goes along a certain extent. He's headed toward Israel. He's fixing to put the curse on them. He's got money in hand. You can only assume at least access to it. And there he goes down the road and Balaam's donkey sidetracks itself. It rams him into a wall. It does it again, again, a time or two. And then finally it turns around and speaks. Just one of the ways God spoke to his people back in those days. And he finally stopped. Reluctantly. Why mention Balaam? Balaam is not one who perverted the gospel. He wasn't going to necessarily go in there and say, well, God said thou shalt not, but I'll just take the knot out. He wasn't necessarily doing that. What was his intent? Well, to me, he represents those who in turn prostitute the gospel. I know the word is, is, is harsh, and I know the word can be misapplied, but we basically understand it. It's an understandable word. Someone who for money will basically do anything, will do the unspeakable for things. There are false prophets, and I start with word of mouth, who stand in pulpits, who for money and for the love of finance will say anything. Doesn't matter. I've had people in my life, I, the, the man who baptized me, and I don't put any count in that. I understand much more about that now than I ever did. Doesn't matter who does it. But the man who baptized me utters false prophecies every day of his life, I guess, when he stands up, when he cracks the Bible. And he does it, I know in his case, for money. And at the very least, we have to consider that at the same time, it may be finance sometimes, but oftentimes it's not that. It's prestige. It's popularity. It's other things. It's power. That's what they want. We often point fingers and say, well, look here, here's a TV preacher. Here's a radio preacher. That's what they're all about. Send the donation. If it were limited to that and that alone, I wouldn't be so worried but it has to do with the lives of so many in the church. I pull it away from them. Turn it on self. What would I do with God's word for money? I may not stand and preach anything. I may not say anything differently about God's word, but what would I take in my life monetarily or for popularity or for power, for prestige, what would I do in this life in order to have those types of things and turn aside from God? Read the text this morning in Bible class. We studied it not too long ago. Lay up for yourselves trees on earth where moth and dust is corrupt. Thieves break through and steal. But he said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He goes on to talk about what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul. There are people among us, oftentimes in our own homes even, that for the love of something, whatever it is, they sell out to God. They prostitute God for whatever it is they want. So we have, we have Cain, we have Balaam, and then we have Korah, or Cori. Again, the New Testament here has it spelled a bit different, but you go back and you can find this in Numbers chapter 16. Now Korah was a member of the priesthood to an extent, and he was basically had gotten jealous of Moses. 
He looked into Moses and he looked into the Aaronic priesthood, the priest of the tribe of Levi, just as God had instructed under the law of Moses. He looked at them and he said, basically, you know, they've gotten too much power and prestige themselves. Now, they had done it for the right reasons on behalf of God, with God's blessing. That's exactly what God had set to do. But he looked, and with a group of others later he brings in, he gets highly, highly irritated and jealous of what they have. And so what does he do? Well, he with the numerous other of his cohorts, hundreds of them, matter of fact, come in and basically try to overthrow Moses. They basically, in their own way, they pray to God and say, God, what Moses is doing here, he's trying to just take advantage of us, and you know that, God. We don't trust that he is who he says he is. We don't trust this priesthood that we got. And so we want to be the ones in power. We want to be the ones who are lifted up. It's all about jealousy. Now, how does that apply? Well, in the case of Cain, we had one who perverted the gospel. In the case of Balaam, you have one who prostitutes the gospel. But in the case of Korah, well, you have one who just protests the gospel. He hears what God wants. He knows precisely and exactly what God has said. If anyone would know in the day, it would be anyone who would participate in the priesthood at any level, whether it be a Levite or a priest himself, anything that has to do with God. And by the way, in that day and time, young boys, we would call them today Jewish boys looking back, but at that day and time, Hebrew boys, Jewish boys, Israelite children, every night of their lives, if the family did what was typical, they sat around the fire and told the story from creation till present day, every single day. And they went through the law, and they instructed themselves in the law. And by the way, so far as sacrifices had to go, you better know the law in that day. Korah and his cohorts knew what God wanted, but they protested. They said, no, that's not acceptable to us. You know, there are false teachers today who have, for whatever reason, they've studied God's Word to a great extent, and perhaps in some cases, they have thoroughly studied God's Word. More so than you or I even. But they despise what it says. There are those today in the church who know what the church is about. They know for, what's, for that which the church stands for. They know what God would have for us to know. And they despise it. You can't preach this. You ought not preach that. This has no business in the church, whatever it is. Friends, if it's between two covers of a Bible, it ought to be talked about. It has to be preached. Pull it away and put it on self. I read through God's Word and I find one commandment. James said, if you fall short in one, you have fallen short in all. I read across God's Word and I find only one commandment that I, I despise. You know, God, that, I'm just not going to do that. I refuse to go that far. You can have this a part of my life or that part of my life, but don't you get in over on this part. I stand in the way of Korah in that I protest the Gospel. Now, how do we know this is going to take place? Jesus warns us. When we think about those who pervert or prostitute or protest the gospel, we can be sure this will take place. Now, this sermon and the whole of it, the whole of the text that we're discussing tonight, to me, in one way, is a great word of warning, no doubt. But in another, it's a word of comfort. 
You know, I would not believe one thing that Christ ever uttered. I would not believe one word ever to be penned by any of these men, even if they claimed the inspiration of God. If when I read about false prophets, I'd never seen one, never known one, never met one. I want the whole of the world to be saved. I want the whole of the world to know what God's Word is saying. I want them to teach correctly. But when I turn the television or the radio or maybe even end up in an assembly somewhere and I hear things that are contrary to God's Word, as much as I might pray for that soul, I turn to God and say, thank God for that soul because I know you're telling the truth. Let me give you a text we'll read through. 2 Peter chapter 2, this is basically Peter's expanded version of what Christ warns of here. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 says, But there were false prophets among the people, even as there were false prophets among you, who privily, and that just means that they took the privilege to bring in, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Now that's just diversions from God's word. They take what God's word said and they turn it on its head and give it to you even denying that the Lord brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow. This is the scary part, but again, it's a part of inspiration and revelation. He says in verse 2, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. That's lustful, unbridled lust. They will follow their pernicious ways and by whom the word of truth shall be evil spoken of. Verse 3. And through covetousness. Now that's one of the ways we talked about a moment ago. The prostitution of the gospel. He says, and through covetousness shall they with feign words make merchandise of you. Whose judgment is now for a long time lingereth not. And their damnation, he says, slumbereth not. Now that's a word of reassurance. A word of warning but it's a word of comfort and reassurance because he says these men, these people, these lives, basically, they will try to turn you on your head cause you to fall away. So what have we done? We've said all that to say we ought to know the fleece that they wear. Go back to the text. Matthew chapter 7, also we ought to know the fruit that they bear. One of the greatest things about this warning is Jesus doesn't say, watch out for false prophets, for inwardly they're ravaging wolves, and then turn around and we say, well, wait a minute. How will we know, Lord? How will we ever be sure? He tells us. Reading it again there, beginning Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravaging wolves. Watch this. For ye shall know them by their fruits. Now, he illustrates it very clearly by saying, if you've got a good tree, it'll bring good fruit. If you've got an evil tree, it'll bring evil fruit. And don't expect one from the other. That just summarizes the rest of it. What you have is what you have. Now consider that. First thing I want you to see Jesus teaches here, and these will all be confusing if you don't listen carefully, because I, I told Jennifer yesterday I'm scared to death to even try to remember these. But first of all, you ought to know that it is the root that determines the fruit. It's the root that determines the fruit. Is that not true physically? I mean, we rarely see the root of a plant. If you enjoy tomatoes or if you enjoy some other type of fruit or vegetable, you rarely, especially in the form of a tree, you rarely see the root. But if you walk up to an apple tree, it doesn't take you being a rocket scientist or an accountant or anything else to know that's an apple tree. 
And that must be the type of root that's there. You don't get out of shovel and spade. You don't dig around. You don't try to search. You can tell. The root determines the fruit. Now, why does that matter in this context? Well, Jesus is warning them. Beware of the false prophets, for inwardly they are ravaging wolves. And then he turns around and illustrates them a similar way by saying you will know them by their fruit. You may never see the root. How many of us honestly believe we can know the hearts and minds of men? Can't do it. But you can often see the fruit. You can often look around you. You can look into your own life if you're intelligent enough to do it. And you can know what your life is about by what you do. By what you produce. And so he says it is the root that determines the fruit. Now, let me tell you something about this. If you have the wrong root... Now, with the roots of the gospel, basically, and we'll go a little deeper than that in just a moment. But if you have the wrong root, you will never produce the right fruit. It's totally impossible. You think about the physical, and we'll put each of these against the spiritual. If you take a tree that you're not real excited about, you thought it was this kind of tree, and it comes up, it's a persimmon or something. Some of you may like those. I think they're sour, am I right? You take a tree you didn't want, you can prune it all you want. It's still what it is. It is what it is. You take someone whose root is wrong, you can prune them all you want. Knock them to their physical or proverbial knees and it will not change who they are. In the physical world, what happens when you prune a tree, at least prune it properly, it strengthens the root. They say you clip the branches just thus and so and the root goes deeper. You take someone who's a false prophet in their words or in their life and you just prune them, you just kind of hit them a lick here and there and say, y'all ought not do that. You bad, sorry thing. Shame on you. You may prune the tree, but you hadn't changed the root. You take it a little bit farther. Pruning will do no good. Likewise, transplanting, it does no good. You take some tree that's got the wrong root you say, well, I plant on an apple and I got a persimmon. You can move it from the backyard to the front. It's the same tree. You move it out the side. If you're like me, you probably move it to your neighbor's yard. Get rid of it. It's still what it is. You take someone with the wrong root, whether it be word of mouth or their life that they live, you can move them from church to church and they're still the same. Doesn't matter. The world's full of churches, quote unquote, uh, they call them denominations and such. But I'm talking about even inside the church. You take them from congregation A to congregation B, and if the root is what it is, and it's wrong, it won't change a thing. Pruning it will do no good. Transplanting it will do no good. You think about this physical thing. You can cultivate it, and it does no good. You can get out there around a tree with a tiller or with a shovel all you want. You can add all the fertilizer you want and if it is what it is, it won't change either. I don't know how many times I've seen Christians, and I mean true to life Christians, who spend most of their time, there's nothing wrong with this within itself, but I'm talking about spend a lot, a lot, a lot of their time reading books on self-help, church growth, going to seminars, learning this, learning that, the 12 steps to this and the 14 steps to that. They know all of that. They're cultivating that. But what's happening? 
if it's the root that determines the fruit, the fruit that's growing, the fruit that may even be alive now that's exploding from their branches, is still not what it ought to be. I think about that, and I consider the fact that you can rename a fruit. You ever thought about that? Someone says, well, that's an apple tree. No, it looks like persimmon to me. No, it's an apple tree. Look, I put the little thing down. When I bought it, it was small, and I put the little thing in the ground. It won't change it. You can take and take the name off a church sign. You can change it a hundred times over and you will not change what's on the inside. You can take a congregation of people who in no way, in no wise, do what God says, but at some point in their lives they studied through God's Word and they came to the conclusion that those, and this is in Ephesians chapter 3, that those who are of Christ are named after Him. They know there's one body. They got all that down and they'll put the name Church of Christ on their sign and until something changes with the root, it doesn't change a thing. Neither will it with the life of an individual. You can be in the right place, but until you live the right life, until I live the way God would have me live, it will do no good. And not to bore you too much, but I'll give you one more. You can decorate that tree. Man, you can come in, you can, take a, you can take that apple tree that you would hope to have that in turn, as our illustration is, is a persimmon, and you can cut it up, clip it up, and make it look like the thing on the first karate kid. You can do whatever you want to. You can hang gold from its limbs, and it won't change what it is. How many Christians, supposedly so-called Christians, whose roots just all wrong, they never started in the right place? Their life is such that men are bowing down. What a great person. What great things that they do. Remember the life of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10? Oh man, you read the first three verses of that, you think you have the greatest disciple that's ever lived. He hadn't even obeyed the gospel yet. His life looked great. So simply stated, it's the root that determines the fruit. Now look back at the text. He says there, just to read a portion of it again, and you shall know them by their fruit. Neither, he said, do men gather grapes or thorns or figs or thistles. You can't do that. For every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but every corrupt tree, he said, bringeth forth evil fruit. What do we learn from this? He says it is the fruit that reveals the root. That's a little different. The fruit reveals the root. You won't know what the root is until you see the fruit. When we set out to judge, and I'll start with preachers because we stand, we speak. When I set out, when you set out, when faithful Christians set out to judge a preacher or teacher, you have to judge more than his words. You've got to go deeper than what he preaches because you've got to move forward into what he practices. We've all heard the term before, oh, he or she, they do or do not, they do or do not practice what they preach. Does that really matter? Yes. Yes, I've heard a poem before. I don't, don't even know how it goes or anything, but basically it's a poem that comes together and says that a man would rather see a sermon any day than hear one. That's true. I look around all the time as a preacher looking out to others and I say, well, you know, uh, this person here complimented me. They, they said I did good on this or they appreciate that. I, 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 hey, 
You find a preacher who says, who says he doesn't like praise, he's a liar, kick him out. I like it. But I'd rather see a life being changed than ever be complimented. I would rather see someone who comes to a, a true examination of self and think about self than ever be praised. So you look at the preacher or the, or the teacher or the fellow Christian and you see what they preach, you see what they practice, but I tell you what, this is what Jesus said. You better see what they produce. If they say they are a child of God's and their life seems to be on the up and up, that's good, but if they're not producing fruit, you can never really know. If a Christian can go all of their lives live all their lives supposedly being faithful to God and not one time is anyone ever by their life, at least through word of mouth, or ever by their life through their teaching, maybe by word of mouth, maybe by actions, whatever it is, no one is ever brought to Christ on their behalf. How can we really know? Jesus didn't say that you shall know them by their fruits that they do not produce. We'll see later, these men are producing. And they're producing in, in high numbers. Great yields. So what do we have thus far? We have the fact that it is the root that determines the fruit. We have the fact that it is the fruit that in turn reveals the root. Now here's the last one. We hadn't mentioned this yet. It is the seed, not mentioned in the text, it is a seed that determines both the fruit and the fruit. That's what really matters. Jesus speaking said, the seed is the Word of God. You can't have a root and you can't have a fruit lest there first be a seed. You ever comprehend the seed? Jesus speaks on one occasion during Matthew 13. We'll reflect on 13 in just a moment. But he speaks on one occasion about a mustard seed. Mustard seed's about the size of a fleck of pepper. About the size of it. But I don't care if it's that big. You ever wonder how a tree, an oak tree comes from an acorn about this big? You ever wonder how that happens? We take for granted that it does. And it does. That's all I know. But can you imagine the first person, and there had to be somebody somewhere who discovered, hey, that's how that tree got there. That's how that, that's how that fruit came. Maybe he cracked a, a, an apple open as we might, and he saw the seeds on the inside, and somehow he put one and two and three together, and there you have it. It amazes me. And so here's the thing. If the Word of God is not what brought the root that brought the fruit, it can't be right. It's just not possible. You take someone who read a, a, a Christian, quote-unquote, self-help book, a devotional book, and it, in passing, mentioned a few things that ought to be done for salvation, and they never once, if it had it even, they didn't reference the Scriptures, they never checked those things to see if they be so. They weren't, they weren't like that. If they missed out on the seed, they don't have anything. Because it is the seed that produces both the root and the fruit. Now, we've seen the fleece that they wear. 
We notice with our Lord the fruit that they bear. But the Lord gives us here the fate that they share. And this might be the false prophet on television. This might be the preacher in the local pulpit. This might be the Christian in the mirror. And I better start and work from here out. Because the faith that they share, the faith that I potentially could and would share is not of my choosing. I'm not the deciding factor. Someone says, oh, I love the preacher that we have. I like his personality. I like this. I like that. That's, that's fine. That's lovely. That's great. I can't sit him in judgment and judge him one way or another for God. I can make judgments from God's word, but I can't judge him for God. Notice the text again. He said, beware of false prophets, for inwardly they, he said, they are ravaging wolves. But you go on a little bit farther than that, continue the reading there. He says, and ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. And every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Now here's where we want to start, really. Verse 21, but we don't want to lose what we're talking about. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in that heaven. Why, Lord? Because many, verse 22, many, not just a few, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Pretty good argument. Lord, have we not, in turn, have we not cast out devils? That's pretty impressive. Lord, have we not in thy name for you done many wonderful works? Now what did he say? I will profess unto them, I never knew you depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Let me give you a quote I've got in the front of my Bible. I write things down often. I don't know where I got it, so I'm stealing it, I'll admit. But there's one thing I want you to know. Spiritual activity without scriptural authority is satanic iniquity. Spiritual activity. Somebody who says, oh, I love the Lord. And they actually go and they do and they work and they serve. And man, they are the, they're the greatest Christian Joe in town. If they don't have the authority of the scriptures to do it, they may as well be working, and they are, by the way, for Satan. They may as well come out and say it. Quotation of a friend of mine, Brother Curtis Cates, often misunderstood, but I hope you'll hear it the way that I do and the way that I think he intends. He said it's his prayer often that Christians who claim to work for God and, and, and in turn really do not, maybe it's just a surface thing, they don't really have the root and the fruit to produce, they don't do what they ought, he said he prays that they would just go to hell like a gentleman. Just stand up and say, I don't care, God. I don't care to serve you. It doesn't bother me what you say. It, don't, it doesn't matter to me what you want me to do. I just take hell and I'll just take it with my heads up and ready to go. 
Now, if we could get to that point in the church, and I'm not talking about sending anybody away, but I'm talking about where every member who claimed to be a member of the Lord's church or every person who claimed to be religious would get Bible authority for what they do, the church would be what God would have it to be. Because spiritual activity that lacks scriptural authority is satanic iniquity. Now, when did he say depart? When did he call for these men and say depart from me? I never knew you depart from me, ye that work iniquity. When they were inactive, when they were even by human standards of no worth, no, no. The preceding verses to it, I go right back up to verse 21. Not everyone, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth, E-T-H, continues to do, the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now what will they say? At what point will he prepare to say this to them or to me? Well, the first thing is, he'll say it in spite of their false profession. He said, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord. They'll call him who he is. One of the things the Apostle Paul said is recorded in Acts chapter 9 when he was struck down by that mighty light from heaven not knowing at the time who was in his presence but he turned and he said maybe by happenstance or accident who art thou Lord? The word their Lord means master. That's one thing the Apostle Paul, even in all of his wrong, had right. Maybe for the wrong reason. I can tell you, I've said before, if a light can knock me down and it comes from you, you, you're pretty well my master. But he had it right. We mentioned the confession that Peter made, said thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In turn, Jesus said, upon this rock, this statement of faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of God, he could have easily summarized it and said, you're Lord. You are the end all. You are the master of everything that I know. In spite of their profession, they said the right thing. He said, depart from me, you that work in iniquity. But not only that, in spite of their preaching. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, in thy name have we not prophesied? Well, we can carry prophecy pretty far. We can carry it to be a miraculous thing, but that's not necessarily it here. These men aren't miraculous. They're not even with Christ, come to find out. They claim prophecy. They claim to have something to say. They preach. The word interpreted preacher simply means proclaimer, speaker. Right when they claimed to preach, he said, depart from me. But then he said, and many will say unto me in that day, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have we not cast out devils in spite of their power? I can't explain how or if they did it, but if they did, and if it be miraculous, it comes from some source other than God, I would assume. But that's impressive. In a day when devils, when demons, when evil spirits were actually able to inhabit men, when that could cause people to tear away their clothes? Oh, that was important. That was needful. Jesus several times cast out devils of his own self. He just said, go, get forth out of them. Cast them in a group of swine on one occasion. In spite of their power, 
And many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have we not cast out devils? Watch this. And in thy name have we not done many wonderful works in spite of their performance? Lord, look at all I've done. Lord, can you comprehend? Do you understand the change that I've made in this congregation or that since I've been there? I mean, I'm a go-getter, Lord. You, you name it and I'll do it. Anything that anyone asks. I'm there. I'm at your door. I'm serving other people. Certainly, Lord, that stands for something. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Friends, that's the fate that they share. And it can be the fate that I share. So what have we done? We have taken and pulled away the wool. We've noticed the fleece that they wear. We have taken then in turn and noticed that we can know them, as the Lord says, by the fruit that they bear. And then we clarified only what the Lord said in the fate that they share. Now what can I do? To start with self and to move outward from self, which in turn will affect other people, what can I do to help? How can I be one who can hear the words, beware of false prophets who come unto you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravaging wolves? How can I help that? If I recognize them, and I ought, I've got the, the material here to do, what can I do? I'll give you five things. We won't elaborate on any of them. The first thing I can do to help is study the faith. Anybody can preach and teach anything from any pulpit, from any speaker's bench, if the people in the audience don't have an idea what he or she is speaking of. I gave a speech, and I'll admit this, and I know it's be recorded and be on the internet. One of the most difficult things you do in Memphis School of Preaching is somewhat unrelated to the Bible. You study the restoration movement. You have to pick a character from the Restoration Movement and you have to learn about that character. You have to read several books, whatever you can get your hands on about them. And then you have to in turn get up and give about a 15-minute speech about that character. And it's the most difficult thing you'll ever do. You can open your Bible, you can do all kinds of stuff with that, you're trained for that, but when you're talking about a person and you've got men sitting in the audience so you assume know these people personally. Well, you can tell it. Now, even though most of them outlived them 100 years before, you just feel that way. You're a little out of your arena. I'm told I was the first student to ever give a restoration speech without notes. I like preaching without notes. I like doing that. I kind of did it to show out to prove myself. But I'll tell you how I did it. It's a secret. I knew the audience didn't know a thing in the world about the man I was talking about. If I couldn't remember his birthday, I made up one. If I didn't know what date he married his wife, who cares? You didn't know he was married. Now that, that's sad for me, dishonest, and I admit it. You know, one of the instructors got up and said that was the finest they had ever heard. I got down to every detail and he was amazed at the dates that I could remember. He bragged and bragged Brother Garland Elkins of all people. I was so sad after that day. I hated to have to admit it later. But What's sad is sometimes false teachers know that. The audience doesn't know what you're talking about. Study the faith. Second, I said there'd be five and I said I wouldn't elaborate so I better pick it up. Not only study the faith but in turn show the faith. If you know it, do it. 
If I understand what God would have for me to do in my life to cause me to, to live the Christian life, why not just do it? Third here, stand for the faith. Someone's questioning what God teaches, which ought to be what I believe. If there's any authority outside of that, I said again, it's satanic iniquity. You ought not hear it. Stand up for it. And then support the faith. You know, there are many, many, many good, good people. I didn't say they were Christian. But there are a lot of good people in bad churches. And I use the word churches very broadly. A lot of them there. A lot of people that if they were ever to sit down and study God's Word and discover the truth of it and come to know the truth of God that came and were active in this congregation would cause this congregation to explode. Be wonderful. But the thing is, they're not supporting the faith, whether they know it or not. They're supporting what they're accustomed to. They're in those places because of what Grandma did. Grandma's buried in the backyard, and so that's where they go. And I'll tell you this, whatever ounce of love, if Grandma could get up and leave, she would already. She knows. So we study the faith. We show the faith. We stand for the faith. We support the faith. And then, here it is, it's closing. We share the faith. If I won't give it away, I ought to give it up. If I do not care enough about the people and the souls that are around me to be concerned about their lives, I ought to give it up. I've said before, people may as well get a sandwich and go home. Forget the Christian life as to not want to share it with others. That's how I help. If I'll do that, and I'll teach and I'll do and I'll go and I'll, all these things, if I do that, false teachers, false prophets, they'll have no audience. In my life, that's what I care about tonight. My life will avoid these things. There won't be any fleece. What you see is what you get. There won't be any fruit outside of good fruit. And the faith, the faith that will become of those who live faithfully to God's Word, how beautiful it is. If you're here tonight and you are not a child of God's, then you can take off the wool, you can uncover your life tonight, and you can have your sins be washed away by first having faith in God. That's a deep reliance, a deep leaning upon Him to the extent that you would be willing to repent of your sins, to confess His name, to know that Christ is who He said He is. He's the Son of God being baptized for the mission of your sins, you'll wash the wool off. And then you can start living the Christian life and you can keep it off through a study of God's Word, through a continuing of doing what God commands. And when I fall short, when you fall short, when these false teachers fall short, I tell you that the best thing about them is they're that close to coming to God. Every one of their souls, every one of our souls, we are that close. It's a difference in doing what he asks and not doing it. I can come home to God tonight through prayer, through repenting of my sin. I can come home and I can be faithful in the sight of God because this is a danger we must determine and it's a danger that's in my life first 
and then in the lives of others. Won't you do that while together we stand and as we sing?